are listening to The Keys 107, opening the doors to endless possibilities in the pursuit of love, peace, and happiness with your host, Rafika and Brother James. where we open doors to endless possibilities in the pursuit of love, peace, and happiness. Tonight's show deals with the financial key. Every third Thursday of the month for the past, I would say, six or seven months, we've had financial expert and business consultant Haru Niket, straight out of Brooklyn, here to give us advice and strategies and help us get our business life and our finances together. So tonight, Haru is here with me. I'm your host, Rafika. My co-host, Brother James, is here. Haru is going to focus in on how to invest in real estate like the pros. So, Brother James, I am saddened today. The news of his purple badness, Prince, passing away. And I think the... um, the doves are truly crying tonight. Mm, mm. Well, you know, uh, may he rest in power and in peace. You know, he is definitely an icon in our community worldwide. And um, I truly believe uh, that he was one of the good ones. So, you know, to his family and to all his fans, you know, uh, cherish every song and every syllable that he sung listen to that music, reminisce, and maybe take you to a good place. So, you know, let's not be too saddened because we know a day comes for us all, and um, it just happened to be his day. So celebrate his life. All right, Fika. You know, when Ziggy Marley was on our show a week ago, uh, we we talked about um, music and how music has a way of documenting an era. And as I spoke to my good friend Kwashi today, she said that Prince was the soundtrack of her young life. And I think that's something that you can hold dear in your heart. And, you know, the sadness is because when somebody who you truly admire in your heart goes, you have a body of music or a body of memories to cherish but you know that that person will no longer walk the earth. So I'm going to move on because I will talk about Prince until Sunday if you don't stop me. Well, I am stopping you because we <laughs> have a story to tell today, and Haruna Ket is really going to bless us with some gems to help us understand the power in investing in, in real estate and give us the tips like we're pros. Well, we have, speaking of tips, um, we have uh, Medea Allen, the organic soul chef, is on standby to give us her healthy tip for today. So let's um, tune in, and as soon as we come back from the healthy tip of the day, Haru will be live. So get your pens and your papers together. Go get a glass of water so you don't have to get up for that for this show. I would suggest you get two or three sheets of paper for this show because Haru is going to lay it on, and he's got 10 points to help you get your real estate life together. (laughs) We'll be right back. 
The healthy tip of the day is to eat African heritage foods. There is memory in your DNA, so the body recognizes and more easily digests food that your ancestors traditionally ate. Start incorporating foods into your diet daily, such as an abundance of leafy greens, tubers like sweet potatoes and cassava, nuts and peanuts, more herbs and spices, fish, and less meat and sweets. When you start eating a more African heritage diet, you will not be challenged with the common food-related illnesses of today and enjoy better health outcomes. Today's healthy tip of the day has been brought to you by Organic Soul Chef Medea Allen. And to learn more about my services, visit OrganicSoulChef.com. And a few uh, notes to um, start off with, that music that you're listening to in the background of Medea Allen's The Healthy Tip of the Day is produced and uh, played by South Africa's pride and joy, Ernie J. Smith. And tonight's show is brought to you by The Fluffs Present the Alphabet. And there is real estate on Cloud Cumulus, which is where they live. So get your copy today. It's available on Amazon.com. Haru, are you there? Your mic is live. I'm here. Hey, good to hear from you, my big brother. How's it going? Everything is great. I'm glad to be here. Good, good, good. I'm excited for tonight. So uh, I don't know, is it anything that you want to talk about before you dive into this wonderful subject matter? Well, I, I just really want to express how excited I am actually to do this topic. Um, what people don't know about me, most people know about my, you know, what I do in business, but it was actually real estate that gave me my first huge break that allowed me to be able to quit my job. It was real estate that carried me through the recession. It was real estate, you know, that put me in that millionaire status. Um, and so, you know, real estate is something that's really important to me. And this month actually marks 20 years uh, from the first property I actually closed on. So I actually closed on my first property in April of 96. So it's a 20-year anniversary show for me Mm. in terms of real estate. All right, all right, all right. So we got a little passion in there, a little energy there. Yeah, a lot of passion, a lot of passion. That's right, that's right. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah, and and I also want to make clear, you know, there, there are a lot of people, the big gurus, internet gurus and, and television gurus who are hosting these huge um, free events in, in the hotels and selling these big packages. And some of the packages, from what I hear, are costing between fifteen dollars and $40,000. And, you know, it's, it's, I think, criminal, you know, some of the information that's being put out there because there's a lot of just repackaged and recycled stuff that, really doesn't work in most people's areas. So I want to dispel a lot of the myths, and I really want to give some information that, that you can't get, you know, other places. So I'm not going to, you know, talk about one specific aspect of, of investing. Some people will talk about, oh, wholesaling, which is just a new term for something that's old. Um, I really want to lay down the, the things that are really essential that you will never get, you know, going to one of those seminars. 
beautiful. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because as we market and we mention to people about what we do on the keys and how important this third Thursday is in terms of our financial life, there's always that one person who might say, well, what is he going to tell us that we don't already know, that we haven't already heard? Well, you know what I tell them, um, Niket? I tell them, tune in and listen <laughs> in. And if you hear something that you don't know, it's all right. Just, you know, you can inbox me and say thanks because, really, it's all about educating our people so they can improve their lot. And we thank you so much for doing so well with us for the length of time that you've been with us. So we always look forward to hearing from you. So wherever you may decide to begin, um, it's good with us. Okay. You know, I want to I want to talk first about understanding the trends in real estate because what people don't understand is that uh, real estate can't be done universally in one particular way. And until you begin to understand the particular trends in a particular location, um, it's very difficult for anyone to be successful. Uh, Again, there's no cookie cutter strategy that works in every place. So you have to begin to look in a particular, first of all, you have to choose a specific geographic location. You know, one Mm -hmm. of the things, that people, the mistake people make is that they think you can invest anywhere. You know, I have people call me up and say, hey, you know who this is deal in Florida, and I, I don't invest in Florida. Uh, as a matter of fact, I only invest in Brooklyn. As a matter of fact, I don't invest in all of Brooklyn. You know, I mm-hmm. invest in North Brooklyn and Central Brooklyn. You know, that's my specialty area. Anything else, I'll pass that opportunity to someone else who can use it. And right. the reason I do that is because I understand the history of those regions going back to when this was a Dutch colony all the way to what city planning is saying is going to happen in the next decade. And, you know, it's important to understand where you're at in order to understand where the money is not only now, but going to be in the next couple of years. And so you need to be able to to pay attention to um, certain economic changes that are going on in your area. You need to understand certain infrastructure improvement that might be going on in your area need to understand the demographic changes that are in your area. And when I say demographics, I'm talking about income demographics, um, racial characteristics. Um, you know, there's so many different things that you have to pay attention to because each, each demographic is looking for something else. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when we, when we look at, at um, some, a lot of the, the urban areas that are rebounding uh, from the recession, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of gentrification. So, for instance, if you look at Brooklyn, People are seeing gentrification, but they're not understanding, you know, how that trend happened or why it happened. And so it just becomes overwhelming and and seems like, well, how can I capitalize on it? And what tends to happen is we wait too late. You know, we wait until, you know, the prices have already gone up and decide that it's time to buy when that's actually a selling season because we have buying seasons and selling seasons. And you need to understand when it's time to buy and when to sell by paying attention. So, um, you know, a, a good resource for everybody to, to pay attention to um, nationally is just Realtor.com. Um, they, they always have current information on ter- in terms of uh, what's selling, um, what changes are happening, what the prices are like. Um, but locally, everybody should go to their city planning agency. And in New York, I know we have it online. So in New York, if you went to NYC.gov and clicked on city planning, it's, it's talking about the changes and what's what the plan is for the next decade in New York for real estate. And so it's important to, to be able to understand those trends or you'll be late. You know, and I always tell my students, I say, you know, if you can understand what the trend is going to be and you catch it early, 
then all the money's going to spill on top of you. If you ride the trend, then you might get a little bit of money, but if you chase the trend, you'll never get anything. And unfortunately, most of the time we chase the trend. We wait until the money is already, you know, or the prices are already too high, and then we think it's time to buy. And there's a, a quick and fast rule. When everybody's buying, it's time to sell and vice versa. Right. And so, so you know, it's, it's really important. So, again, if we just to give an example of trends, because I know that sounds like such a mystery when we talk about trends, um, you know, we, we've seen the result of changing demographics in New York City and particularly in Brooklyn. Brooklyn now has become um, the most expensive they calling it a city of the borough, but the, the most expensive city in America to live in, and it had been San Francisco, and there's some parallels there, and if we pay attention, we'll understand why. Um, and it's the most expensive city in America to, to live in because of the rents. And rents can only increase when salaries increase, and there's mm-hmm. been a huge increase in, in a particular demographic salary because the tech industry has moved from San Francisco. I mean, it's still there, but it has moved to New York City. And so when you have a tech industry that's moved to New York City and the people, the residents in New York City um, don't necessarily qualify to work there, then you have to import workers from elsewhere. And so we're seeing a huge importation of Europeans uh, from Europe who are coming here and they're making ridiculous salaries. And so what happens is they need a place to live, um, Manhattan is very small and saturated, and so you get much more space and much more beautiful architecture actually in Brooklyn. So they went for the brownstones, which, um, you know, people forget the value of a brownstone, and we'll talk about intrinsic value later, but they're, they're buying them all cash. And this is a real market, and so we're not seeing the trend like we saw during the last real estate bubble where credit was easy to acquire, and so people were buying it on credit. And so there was a correction in the market when people defaulted. These properties in Brooklyn are primarily being bought with cash. So this is a real market that's going to last. And so if we understand that um, there's been a change, again, in, in, the, in the economy by bringing in a new industry and then bringing in workers who fulfill those jobs and they have a lot of cash, then we have to be able to capitalize on that. But we have to, we have to understand the timing. We have to understand what types of properties they're going after and so what neighborhoods have those, those types of properties. Then the flip side of that is the people who had lived there before, uh, if the rents go up, won't aff- be able to afford to live there, but they have to live somewhere. So right. although we're also, we're also seeing that the highest number of, of homeless people in, in New York City in, in ever, um, which those people are going to need a place to live too, but we're also seeing working-class folks having to migrate to other, other neighborhoods. And so, you know, if certain neighborhoods are, are being saturated by people who have money, then working-class folks are going to move to uh, traditionally what were lower-income areas, and those become the middle-income areas. And so there's opportunity there too. And so you, you have to understand this, this immigration and this migration of people mm-hmm. and to understand um, you know, how to capitalize on that. And, and you have to look at, understand that, again, real estate is, is regional. So, you know, I spent some time actually um, early in the year in Detroit, and I was amazed. You know, I went to Detroit two years ago, and the city was just devastated. I mean, there were literally blocks and blocks and blocks of abandoned buildings, and there was no construction going on. There was, you know, um, industries were actually leaving Detroit. And I went back in the fall, and I was amazed. If you go to the downtown area, there are certain things that are being built 
that indicate that there's going to be long-term growth. There was a new hospital being built. Um, they were paving the highways and, and the streets. Um, there was new construction going on. Um, yes. There was, a, again, a, a, a change in demographics in the area um, that people were coming in to, to, to work in the, in the higher uh, tech industries there. And so now it would be a buying season there because there's so much inventory. You know, when there's a lot of inventory and few qualified buyers, it's a great time for a buyer to buy. You know what I mean? Because that, that keeps the prices at a certain uh, level. But if you know that maybe the area is going to change, then that means there's going to be an increase in value. And so you need to, to start looking with a different perspective when you're talking about real estate. It's not just about let me just buy something or, to, or buy anything or buy whatever I can afford. It's really looking at where, where value is. Right. And that kind of leads to the next thing. You know, if you understand the, the changing uh, changes in terms of trends, then you have to have a clear desired outcome for yourself. Like, what are you trying to get from investing? Um, I think most people really don't have a clue. Um, and you have to, and I always say you have to start with the end. When I say that, you have to figure out how you're going to get out of the property. So, you know, you have to make a decision. Are you looking for uh, steady cash flow, meaning that you're looking for some type of passive income um, that pays you every single month, um, which, is, which is a different type of uh, uh, property that you're going to look for, it's a different location you're going to look for, uh, different pricing that you're going to look for, or are you looking for what some people call a quick flip? Are you looking to buy a property below market value, um, improve it by putting some money into it, and then selling it to an end-use buyer? Again, that's going to be a, a different location, a different type of property, a uh, different type of investment that you have to put in it. Um, and then you have some people who are looking for long-term equity growth, meaning that they understand that over a long period of time that the, the value is going to increase and they'll sell it later. And so they're not worried about getting it extremely, you know, at, at extremely low price because they know that this thing has maybe intrinsic value. So, for instance, when we look at a brownstone or a limestone, um, you know, if you went to Baltimore or you went to, to Harlem or Brooklyn, and, you know, Brooklyn actually has the, the, probably the most beautiful brownstones in the country, by the way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when, when we look at that, yeah, there's no doubt about it. Um, and there are other people that agree. And when you look at a group like the Dixon Group, the Dixon Group is a, a group of investors from Australia. And what they did at, at the, I guess, at the, the, toward the end of the recession, they started buying everything in Bed-Stuy. And what they were doing was creating a new market. So one thing we have to understand is that real estate values are based on what we call comparables, meaning properties that sold in a particular area within a mile and a half uh, within a few months that are similar in size, shape, building material, et cetera. And so what they did was, with all cash, they started buying up the brownstones and buying them at the, the peak of what the market was at the time. And they did this continuously um, until they got the prices to be a million dollars plus. So when we look back maybe five years ago, a brownstone that would cost you maybe $380,000 now would cost you $1.2, $1.3 million. And so they understood the value. And what they did was they, they bought it at the peak uh, and, again, raised the, the value of the, of the prices by pushing the boundaries of, of um, you know, price because they have a 10-year strategy. And so what their plan was, was is to buy it at that peak 
have people come in buying cash, which means it's not going to go backwards. It's a real market. And then it'll only increase in time because you can't afford to build a brownstone today from scratch. Um, the, the pricing would be well into the millions. Um, and so even though they would restore it somewhat, the, you know, restore the interior somewhat, it was still less expensive than trying to build a new one. So as they become more and more scarce, they become more and more valuable. And so over time, over that 10-year stretch, the value is going to maybe double or triple, and then they'll let them go. And so, you know, we have to, to begin to understand that, that type of concept. So there are some people, you know, like I said, who will pay at the top of the market with a longer-term strategy and then let it go. And then, you know, there's um, different ways to look at it. Are you looking at this as something that you're going to pass on to an heir? Because then you're going to put a different amount of money into it as well. So, um, you know, I, I, I know a guy who actually bought a, a property for, not, for each of his children. You know, that was his right. thing during his lifetime. He was going to buy a property for each child, and that was their inheritance. Um, which, which means that you're going to put, a, again, a different amount of, of work into it because you have to make sure it's preserved, you have to preserve the value so that they're inheriting, you know, not a money pit, but something that has value that, you know, they can either live in or pull equity out of or, or sell themselves. So you have to be really clear before you get into it, you know, what you're trying to get out of it because that's going to change Again, where you look, what types of property you look for, how you acquire it, what you're going to do with it when you have it, and how you're going to let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and I, I don't think most people look at it that way. And again, you know, I think most people just whatever they think they can afford, they buy. You know, and that's just not really a good strategy if you're an investor. It's not really a good strategy if you're doing it for home buying for yourself either. Um, you shouldn't settle for where you should have to live, and you certainly shouldn't settle for how you're going to get money out of this thing because you have to look at it like it's a business. Um, right. So uh, the next thing you have to do is you have to understand that there are a variety of, of strategies. So based on your desired outcome, um, you're going to look back and you're going to say, okay, am I going to buy and flip? If I buy and flip, then the goal is to create, like I said, equity. And that means that I have to buy this thing between 20 and 60% below the market value. And that's important. I think people don't understand that because there's, when people – what we call a spread, a spread is the, the what you purchase it for what, and what you can sell it for. There's a spread in between, right? So the difference between those things is what you call a spread. And most people overestimate the spread. And there's, a, there's really a simple way to figure it out, you know, if there really is a spread and if it's worth, you know, um, even going into the deal. And what you have to do is determine the after-repair value. Mm. And how do you determine the after-repair value is you have to get, one, comparables, and how do you find comparables? People say, well, how do you find comparables? There's a lot of different ways to find comparables. You can go online and try to get comparables, and Zillow is one place, but I don't think they have the best comparables, but it's a great place to start. So if you look at Zillow, it'll tell you, it'll give you comparables in terms of uh, what the market value is. If you go on Property Shark, if you're in the East Coast, um, Property Shark is an excellent resource for comparables. If you go to a title company, um, it, or some place called a title company in New York, called an abstract company. So a title company, abstract company is the same thing. If you go to a title company or an abstract company, and uh, you can actually pay for comparables, 
You can pay for an appraisal, which I don't think is the best way because an appraisal can cost you five or six hundred dollars. Um, but you, what you want to figure out is what a property will be worth in a particular condition, and that condition is also going to be determined by who your demographic is and what you're trying to get out of the property. So, um, again, if you can figure out what the after repair value is, is going to be, then you also have to get an estimate from a contractor what it's going to cost to put it in that condition. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to go too fast, but so you have the after repair value. You subtract mm-hmm. the cost of putting it in that condition. Then you got to subtract your acquisition and holding costs. So your acquisition cost is whatever it costs to purchase it, and your holding costs are costs that incur until you're able to sell it. And people underestimate that. So it's still mortgage, taxes, insurance that have to be paid. Um, there may be utilities that still have to be paid, um, you know, until this thing is sold. You might have to pay right. for security. I, you know, I've had a property that I was rehabbing, and I didn't have security, and somebody came in and stole the new cabinet, stole the toilet, stole everything overnight. And so yeah. you might consider, you know, so there are, there are all these costs that have to be incurred. And so when you add all those costs up and then you subtract it from the after repair value, that'll tell you what the spread is. And oftentimes what you thought was a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar spread will dwindle down to ten, fifteen thousand. So if you add miscellaneous things that we don't account for that usually happen, it's, it's not really worth doing the deal. And that's why I say, you know, you have to try to get between twenty and sixty sixty percent, you know, off the, the um what the fair market value is and keep those costs low. So okay. that's buy and flip. Then we have what you call buy and hold. Buy and hold, then your goal is to tailor the property to your target renters want. And then rent it for cash flow and tax benefit. And so if your target demographic is um a family with children, then there's certain areas you're going to buy in, right? You're going to buy in a place that may have um, parks and playgrounds. You're going to buy in a place that has uh, low crime uh, statistics. And you can find all that uh, with your, whatever your city planning is, too. Like in New York, again, if you go on nyc.gov, it'll tell you, you know, all the crime stats, the school's performance. So you want to go where school where there is good school performance. You want to go in places with that are, are family-friendly if that's your demographic. Right. Um, if your demo, right. If your demographic is um, college students, then you're going to buy near a college, but then you want places where they can go to have recreation or fast food. You know what I mean? So you, you're going to do things differently, um, but then you're going to put different things in the apartment as well. So if my goal is, is to rent it to um, a young couple or a family, then I know, for instance, I need to have uh, the kitchens and the bathrooms done um, you know, because wives tend to be drawn to a good kitchen and bathroom. Um, right. I might need to have a, a walk-in closet in the bedroom. Um, yeah. I need space for um, a bedroom, separate bedroom for the child. So, you know, all these things are going to make a difference in terms of, of what you choose. Um, then we have things like um, assigning contracts. Assigning contracts is a, is a very um, sophisticated, you know, strategy for some people, and it's only good let me just explain what it is first, and I'll tell you where it's good and where it's not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, a real estate purchase contract is considered personal property. You know, a, a piece of property is considered real property, right? A building is considered real property, but the contract to purchase is considered personal property. 
which means that as personal property, you have the right to um, transfer or assign it to someone else, uh, transfer it to someone else, or to sell it. It has value in itself. Now, it has value in situations where inventory is low and the amount of buyers is high, right? It's based on supply and demand. When you have situations where inventory is high and the available uh, qualified buyers is low, then assigning contracts is really not valuable. So um, there are a lot of, of these wealth gurus, these real estate gurus who are selling what they call it wholesaling now, wholesaling. And it's not valuable in a place where you have an abundance or a surplus of properties and very few qualified buyers. So, you know, that's not a, a good strategy for certain areas. Um, a strategy that most people underestimate that I think is a phenomenal strategy, uh, especially here in, in the city where, you know, you can't buy a property for under a million dollars pretty much in, in certain areas, is to lease. And what we don't understand is if you lease something, <clears throat> you control it. And so your goal is to control the property and with the right to sublet it and then creatively maximize its use to create positive cash flow uh, for the short term. And so let me just give you an example of that. Um, one of the, the things that I used, to, I used to have uh, hostels. I used to actually have the number one hostel in New York, Crown Brownstone, and I had four locations. The first two locations were in buildings that I purchased. And then as I began to expand, you know, I realized the, the acquisition cost didn't really make sense when I could lease a place and then sublet it and, and put my hostels in it anyway. And so I was able to control the properties and be able to make money from it without having the liabilities that are attached to it. Mm. And I don't know if that makes sense, right? So I, don't, I, I didn't have to pay um, water and sewage. I didn't have to pay the taxes on it. I didn't have to pay a mortgage on it. Um, if things didn't work out, I could walk away from it. I didn't have a 30-year obligation. Um, and so it made much more sense for me to do, to do that. And interestingly, as the market shifted, to have that type of control is still important because when the hostile industry went down because the economy changed, uh, when the economy changed, we had a, a huge uh, uh, increase in homelessness. The Department of Homeless Services was looking for places for people to stay. And so it was easy for me then to transition because I controlled the properties to provide housing for homeless people. And then, you know, we have to look at, again, as, as markets change, as long as you can control it, you know, you'll find things to do with it. So, again, you can – there are so many government programs that are finding a more and more difficult time um, being able to place certain um, of their clients. So when we talk about HASA, HASA is a program that provides housing for AIDS patients. Um, again, if you can control that, then you can provide, you know, housing for them. Um, there are programs that provide housing for victims of domestic violence and – um, they're, they're finding it hard, again, to find places to house women who are, who are victimized. You can rent a space and, again, rent it out, lease a space and then sublease it to them, sublet it to them. Um, there are returning veterans. There are programs for people returning from incarceration. There are just a multitude of programs. Um, and then we have uh, foreign exchange students. I know that's big here where they have this immersion program. I know Japan is doing it. China is doing it. Um, there are these where their students are coming in and wanting to be totally immersed in the language and the, and the culture, 
they're looking for temporary housing. And then there's always student housing. And so there are so many ways that you can get into real estate and make a huge profit without having to actually, um, you know, enter into a purchase contract and, and put all this money up and purchase it. So, uh, you know, to me, one of the, the best strategies for beginners today, because you, you minimize your risk and you minimize your liability, is to lease a property and to control it. You know, which, which leads me to my next point. You know, I say it's always better to control than own. And also it's better to have options than obligations. So let me explain that a little, little, little more. Um, it's generally poor people that want to own things, meaning that they want to put their name on it. And they're doing it as a sense of pride and accomplishment that they have their name on something. And I'd much rather control it than have my name on it. And so I'll give you an example. Um, I have several properties, and but none of them are in my name. And there's a reason for that um, in terms of liability. So they're in either LLCs or, or corporate or C corporations. Um, anytime you own a property, you kind of open yourself up to, to lawsuits, um, right. whether it's frivolous lawsuits or not, you know, somebody could slip and fall in front of your place or whatever the case is. And what happens is if you have everything in your name, if the lawsuit is big enough and the um, insurance doesn't cover it, they can go after all of your assets. And, but if you have it in a corporate entity, then the most they can go after is the value of that corporate entity or, or, or you know, so that particular asset, but not all of your other things. So that's mm-hmm. one, you know, extremely important reason we want to control this, you know, not necessarily own this. I want to look poor on paper. Mm-hmm. And when you look poor on paper, then you're judgment-proof because attorneys won't take the case because an attorney will only take the case if they think they're going to win because they get paid only when they win in right. this type of situation. So, you know, I, I want to control that. Um, also, again, you know, we talked about you know, in real estate letting somebody else get all the depreciation from the property and have to put in the work. So you're not responsible for major repairs. So when you talk about things that could go wrong, the roof, the boiler, the electric, the plumbing, you know, when you lease it, you're not responsible for those major repairs. So right. let somebody else have to put, right, let somebody, let somebody else put all the money into those things. So big capital repairs, they're responsible for, but you get the benefit of use and you get to make, you know, a profit from it. Um, so your costs are much lower, um, it's, you know, especially when you think about what it takes to purchase uh, because you don't have to put down the down payment. Usually what you need is the first month's rent and security. So when you compare that to having to put 5% or 10% down on a property, it's significantly less. And so the barriers to entry are far less. Um, but What's important, though, is we have to understand the certain language that has to be in your lease agreement or you won't be able to do it. And so you have to make sure that um, you put in the contract that you have the right to sublet. Because if you don't, then you're just stuck with the property. So, that, you know, that's really important to understand, too. Um, and when we talk about uh, control and not own, I'll give you an example of, if, of just a strategy we call lease with an option to buy. So let's just go back to this idea that we want to use this as a business. And so uh, if I was to put a government program, say, in a building 
one of the mistakes that people make is that they acquire a property and then they look for somebody to put in it. I would look for the program first. And so mm-hmm. if I went, yeah, then that makes sense because there's certain programs that look for, they want an entire apartment. There's some programs that look for uh, rooms in an apartment. There's some programs that look for beds in rooms in an apartment. And so you need to know what each one is looking for. And so if I found out what they're looking for, then I go and find that to, to lease. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. So what I want to do is if they say, well, we, we do rooms, then I'm and, – and they're not particular necessarily about the neighborhood, then I'm going to find a place where I can get the most square footage for the least amount of money mm-hmm. so I can put the most amount of people in there and pay the, the least amount of cost for myself because, in general, they have a, a, a fixed amount that they're willing to pay. And so if they're willing to pay $2,000 a month and they don't care which, which – you know, if they don't care if you're paying $2,000 or you're paying $3,000 or you're paying $1,000, then I'm going to find a place where I can pay $1,000 and meet their requirements. Right. Right. So what I would do if I, if I intended to, to – one of the things that you can do, again, is a lease option strategy. So if I, if I understood what the program is looking for, then I would approach a seller in a neighborhood where the properties are not moving fast and so where there's a lot of inventory – but not necessarily a lot of desire um, because there are certain areas that are going faster. So I would approach that seller and I would tell them that I want to do a lease with an option to buy. And for those who don't understand what a lease with an option to buy is what I'm, I'm doing is I approach the seller and I go into a lease agreement and a purchase agreement at the same time. And it's like buying a property on layaway. And so what I do is I enter into a purchase contract for a year or two out, meaning that I'm not going to buy it today, but I have a right to buy it at a certain price a year from now or two years from now. And in the meantime, I'm going to rent the place from you for a particular amount. And so let's say it's a three-story building, then I would tell them I'm going to pay you for all three apartments, but because I'm going to pay you for all three apartments and take away your uh, responsibility of landlording, and you have to give me a break on all three apartments. And most of the time they will. And here's the, here's the thing that solidifies that deal. I'm going to put a certain amount of money down. So let's say I told them uh, I'm going to give you $5,000 down, and I want to put that money towards the purchase of the property. But every month I'm going to pay you, say, $3,000, and that $3,000 doesn't go toward the purchase of the property. That goes straight into your pocket. But in addition to the $3,000, maybe I'll give you an extra $500 a month that goes towards the purchase. Mm. And some people say, well, okay, but what's the incentive? If for some reason I don't exercise the option at the end of the term, whether it's a year or two years, you keep all the money. So there's no loss for you. You can actually put it back on the market, and you keep all that money that I gave you. So then people say, well, what's the incentive for me? Well, I need to know that, again, two things. One, I have a right to sublet the place because I've already spoken to a program that's told me I'm, I, they'll pay me $5,000 a month. So if they're going to pay me $5,000 a month and I'm only, it's only costing me $3,500 a month, then I, and I collected first month's rent and first month's security from them, I covered my $5,000 cost up front that I'm paying towards the down payment, and I'm getting a spread every single month from putting money in my pocket. So there's no risk for me. Now, 
here's the thing. As, a, as a, an investor, I don't necessarily want to purchase the property. So also in my contract, the purchase contract, I'm going to put the language and or assigns. And that's really critical to put and or assigns means I can assign this contract to someone else. So what I want to do is I want this thing to show profitability for six, seven, eight months, and I'm going to find a buyer for the business. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to – now that contract becomes valuable because I'm showing that it's already making $1,500 a month and there's money that's going towards down payment. So what I would do, maybe I'll sell the contract for $30,000, which means that not only did I collect every month for seven, eight, nine months, I'm also recouping whatever money I put in and getting a profit, and then I can Wow, that's ingenious. You know, and those are the types of strategies that someone can do when they have very little money. So when you and you could, yeah. When you lease with option to buy, does the owner of the property have to give you first right to purchase, or does it go up to the public? No, no, no. No, I have first right to purchase. That's that's the option. I paid I paid that five thousand up front for the option to buy it at the end of the year or at the end of two years. Mm-hmm. Now there's Here's a lot question. of no, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Ask your question. Then I'll, I'll just all right. A, a so, how point. difficult is it for the owner, uh, for the buyer, to get the owner to agree to sub uh, have the right to sublet? Um, it's only. Uh, so there's, there's certain things you're going to look for in a, in a, uh, a seller, and I'm going to talk about some of those things a little later, but the, the most important thing is that they have to be flexible and open to creative deals. If they're not, then move on. And the good thing is when you have a situation like we have here where you have an, a, an, a huge surplus of property and not a, a lot of qualified buyers, then it, it makes people more open to doing a deal. Mm-hmm. And so you have to know your area, too. Now, if there's a real estate agent involved, the selling of the property for that person is not going to happen. Right. And the reason I say it's not going to happen is because the real estate agent will do everything they can to block that, that agreement because they can't get their commission until the property is sold. And if you're not buying it until a year or two out, that means they can't get their commission until a year or two out. So we have and to look so, for signs for on sale by for owner. For sale by owner, absolutely. Um, there's a website for that too, fsbo.com. Um, they have some properties. FSBO is for sale by owner. So fsbo.com is a one place to look for that. But I say we look for certain signs. Um, uh, you know, if you see the sign for sale by owner in the window or you see a property that's vacant but it doesn't have a for sale sign, look for that owner because that means every single day, that property sitting there is losing money. Right. So if you, you still see, have to pay taxes. Absolutely. You know, or maybe even a mortgage. So if you mm. see, um, you know, no curtains in a window and the place looks vacant, if you see circulars piling up in front of the doors or, you know, trash that doesn't look like it's moved in, you know, ages, then, you know, look up the, the owner of the property and try to contact them directly um, because, mm-hmm. That means they they probably don't want to be a landlord themselves, you know, and they're usually open to doing a deal, you know. So that's really important. Um, and there was a point I was going to make before. Um, oh, <laughs> so I think <laughs> I should have said it before. But in terms of of uh, uh, 
What was I going to say? Some, well, was it, yeah, it was before I, I mentioned the right to sublet, but Rafika had asked a question. Um, what, what was your question, Rafika? No, I just wanted to make sure that um, when you go into contract with lease with option to buy, you have the first option um, to purchase the property, but yeah. how do we answer okay. that question? So now now yeah. remember, thank you. Um, okay. So one of the, the, the good things about this is, and we talked about having options and our obligations, is I can walk away from this deal if, if I need to. And, and what things would make me walk away from the deal? What if there was a sudden change in the market? If there was a sudden change in the market and the value went down, then I can walk away from this and I haven't lost anything because I've made money every single month during that time. Um, I could walk away from this if I couldn't find a buyer. So I just collect all those months, you know, make a profit and then walk away. Um, but the good thing is if the value of that property increases, I've mm-hmm. already locked in a particular price. So it's increased my equity automatically just because time has passed and I locked in a price from today and I'm getting next year's, you know, I'm purchasing it, purchasing it next year or the year after. Okay. Um, okay. So, you know, in other ways, again, just to, to mitigate risk, you know, we really want to look at that idea of having options and not obligations. And I'll just give you a, a quick story. I have a, um, a client, I won't say his name, because he was really big in the music industry um, in the 80s and 90s. And so what he did, he took his earnings, and um, now he's retired from the music industry, he decided to buy into a pizza franchise here in New York City. And he actually did it at just right before the recession hit. Um, he leased two uh, storefronts in Manhattan and decided to open up you know, uh, this pizza franchise. And, of course, when the recession hit, nobody wanted to buy pizza. And he, in his wisdom, he had decided to get a long-term lease because he understands how rents can change so dramatically in Manhattan. But when his business went down, he got stuck with right. these long-term leases and nothing to do with it. And mm-hmm. had he had the right to sublet, even though his business didn't do well because pizza didn't do well at the time, there were some businesses that, that were able to endure, um, you know, the, the downturn in the economy and still do well. And he could have sub, subleased the places to them. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's always better again, to control my own and to have options and not obligations. Mm, I like that. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Okay. All right. So okay. Um, the next thing I want to make clear is that you have to know what your demographic wants. You know, we, we talked about this a little bit um, when we talked about understanding what your desired outcome is, but you have to, you have to really study your demographic. And I'll give you an example. Again, I, I told you I had hostels. And my demographic was young Europeans who were coming to the United States. Some were coming to make a transition to work here and stay, but most of them were coming on vacation. And so when I decided to build out the building to, to, make, to accommodate them, um, I had to get an interior designer because I had no clue what young Europeans wanted. I had I just didn't have a clue. And so I had to find a, a designer who had experience with that type of demographic so that the place was appealing. You know, and and so sometimes we miss that. Or sometimes we put things in there that we would want and not pay attention. Um 
So, for instance, if you're in certain areas um, with young people, now bike racks would be important. And, right. right and, and Wi-Fi throughout the building is important. And what I've discovered with certain uh, changing demographics here in the city, they want a washer and dryer in the building. They don't yes. want to have to go up to the laundromat. You know, um, I've discovered that many of them don't care, but the young people don't care about a closet. So you can rip the closet out and actually give them a little more space. Um, but then I understand that there are certain demographics, when you talk about a family moving in, then the kitchen and bathroom have to be just like places they can stay all day and be happy. You know, so um, we've also seen changes here where roof decks are a new thing. Um, so we, and, and parking, you know, is a premium here in the city. So you have to understand who your demographic is because you don't want to put in um, expensive fixtures when they don't care about that. Or um, here in the city, you don't want to put in carpet. Nobody wants carpet in New York City. Everybody wants hardwood right. floors, right. Um, which is different from places down south. And you would think it would be the opposite. I don't know, down south, everybody likes wall-to-wall carpet, carpeting, but here nobody wants carpeting. They all want hardwood floors. Um, so you right. put money into the floors, um, but you ne- won't necessarily put money into the to the walls, you know. Um, so, you, you know, so important to, to know that so you don't waste money on things that are not important or so that you don't put things in that will get either your quick rental or quick sale. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other thing is don't put things in there that's not going to attract the clientele that you, um, you're looking to serve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because when you go um, house hunting, the two of the things that the real estate, the realtor always emphasizes is the kitchen and the bathroom. And as you spoke earlier, that the kitchen is a major attraction for most home buyers. Right. Well, and now what people don't get is who really makes the buying decision for a home. Mm. Um, <laughs> men know who makes the buying decision. Well, men <laughs> pay for it sometimes, but they don't make the decision. And so, as I know, as an investor, if I'm looking for what we call the end-use buyer, somebody's going to buy a place, I don't even talk to the man. <laughs> I don't. I, 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 talk to, I talk to his wife or his, his significant other, and I walk her to the places that I know would be a little more appealing to her because most men, um, if left alone, they'll go for the lowest price. Um, you know, they'll settle for, for, I don't care, you know, I can live in a hole in the wall as long as it's mine you know, where a woman looks for certain amenities that a man doesn't look for. Um, so, you know, even in showing it, I mean, there's just there's different ways to show a property. If I know somebody's single, I know they're not necessarily going to spend a lot of time there. They're going to go out. Then I know there's other things that, that are appealing. I'll even show the property different to them. Well, so, Haru, I want to take a moment and recap on the talking points that you mentioned already, and i also like to welcome our callers that are on the line and to let them know if they have a question, they want to comment on some of the points that Haru has mentioned earlier and just now, you can always press the number one on your keypad to let us know that you are ready to talk. Um, that's kind of like raising your hand in the classroom. This is a classroom. So far, I've got two pages of notes here. This is a good time to go to a break, but before we go to a break, let's recap. One is to recognize the important trends in real estate. Two, start with a clear and desired outcome. Three, understand the multitude of strategies available for investing. Four, sometimes it's it's better to control than own, and it's always better to have options and obligations and 
The fifth point, which we have just spent some time on, is know your demographics or your demographic wants. Harold, do you need to add anything to that? Um, no, I just hope people really ask some questions because, again, I'm really passionate about this subject. And, you know, in a short show, I couldn't include everything. So hopefully there will be a few questions that people ask um, so I can cover some more. Okay, well, hold on to that. And our listeners, press the one on your keypad. The Keys 107. We'll be right back. For fashion that bring out the best in you, go to moon107.com. That's M-A-U-N-107.com. We feature organic hair and skin products, pink Himalayan sea salt, women tunic tops, children's books, jewelry, art, and organite. Visit us on the web at moon107.com, M-A-U-N-107.com. Rafika Consultants and Services Technology Trainers. Do you need help making your computer or smartphone work for you? Whether it's managing your email, navigating Windows 8, working with MS Office, creating videos for YouTube, or any other technology need, our friendly and expert trainers are ready to help you get it right. We also provide public relations and web design project management. For more information, contact us at www.rafikacs.com or on Facebook at Rafika Consultants and Services. The first hour of family is turned up in the sky. Fluff presents the alphabet is available on Amazon.com and on Kindle. So get your copy today. For more information, go to www.thefluffffamily.com. Now, 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 back to the keys. 107 with your host, Rafika and Brother and as we said earlier at the top of the show, today's show is sponsored by the Fluffs Present the Alphabet and um, the Fluffs Live on Cloud Cumulus. And uh, Freddie and Fluffy want me to let you know that there is real estate on Cloud Cumulus. So get your copy today. We're back with Haru Niket, who is talking about and giving us some, I would say, some very clear, easy to, easy to follow steps on how to invest in real estate like the pros. And, Haru, I just want to say that you're making it seem, sound so easy to do this. I, and, I, well, and I do like that point yeah. about – go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I got no, lots to say, but I want you it's, to talk. It's, 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 um, it, it's not it, – it's easy, but it, it's not um, – I wouldn't say it's as easy as it, it sounds because it's a numbers game. You know, one of the things that we have a saying in real estate, it's 100 to 10 to, to, to 3 to 1. And that means for every 100 properties that you analyze, right, because you might, and that doesn't mean you visit 100 properties, but for every 100 properties that you look at, there'll be 10 that you probably make an offer on. And the 10 you make an offer on, three will probably get accepted. And the three that get accepted, you'll probably close on one. And then it starts all over. So 
you know, the, the, the process is easy, but finding that right deal is the hard part. And I think, you know, that's what um, a lot of, the, again, the, the big gurus don't tell you. So they, they make you think you just you get the information and go out and find the property anywhere. You, it's really, that's the really difficult part. It's 100 so, to 10 to 3 to 1. You've got to look wow. at 100, 10 offers you'll make, 3 get accepted, mm. you'll close on 1. But the rest is easy. What's easier, the looking or the closing? <laughs> you know, Actually, looking at a hundred or closing on one. Yeah, yeah, once once you get once you've got it, you know, once it's in, in contract, and you know that's that's not difficult. You know, once you've gone through the negotiation, it's not difficult. Then it's just a time element. You just have to wait till the lawyers, you know, try to mess up the deal for you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's what we call lawyers deal killers, by the way. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. We might have um, to do lawyers on the line. So I and, and they know. They know what I'm talking about. You know, um, <laughs> you know that their job is to find problems. That's yes, what they get sir. paid for. And so they'll always find a problem. Um, and so I always tell investors, too, that you need to be clear, again, on what your desired outcome is and understand that the attorney works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, I write my own contracts. Um because it's interesting, all contracts say standard real estate contract on the top, but there is no standard. So whatever your standard is, that's it. And so wow. I'll write a contract, and I'll hand it to my attorney, and I'll say, is this legal? And, you know, I've had them say, well, you're not going to get anybody to sign that. And I'm like, well, I didn't ask you that because that's not your job. It's my job to get them to sign it. I need to know, is what I'm putting in there legal? And they say, uh-huh. yes. Okay, that's all I need to know. And so mm. most of us don't. Uh, empower ourselves like that and understand who's working for who. And so, well, Haru, you know, you, yeah. You know that what that sounds like? The old school way like? of doing music business. Mm. You guys are writing their own contracts. That's why folks got themselves in big trouble, you know, with production deals <laughs> and so forth. Right. Yeah. So, so it's I'll, important, I'll I think, to, to understand that. Yeah, you you have to, you once you understand you know, um, because attorneys don't want their jobs to be, be difficult. And so they have, mm-hmm. you know, a certain set of ways they, they do things. And, you know, it's an old boys network. It's not like they argue back and forth with each other. It's like, okay, this is standard. Yes, yeah, standard. Let's do it. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, their job, again, is to find a problem. So if you want to do a lease with an option to buy, they might tell the seller, oh, what if he doesn't exercise the option? Then you lose the deal, you know. But they're not going to lose the deal and because they're not explaining that you're going to make money the whole time. You know what I mean? So they'll always try to find a, a, a way to get the deal done simple and not complex. And for an investor, sometimes I need it to be not so simple. I need it to be a little more complex. Um, so, you know, that kind of leads me to the next thing, which is how do you analyze the deal? You know, how do, yes. you, how do you look at it and decide what makes sense? And there are basically six things that I look for uh, when I analyze um, a, a deal to see if it makes sense to do it. And the first one, it goes back to what I said earlier, I need a motivated, flexible seller. Mm-hmm. And so when I say motivated, they have to have a certain urgency to do a deal. You know, somebody that doesn't care, it's like, ah, I don't care if I sell it or not. It's a little more difficult to negotiate with them. And so they have to have right. some type of urgency. Um, you know, I like to find people, and I hate to say it, who are going through a divorce because they can't wait to get rid of a property because they don't want anything jointly together anymore. Mm-hmm. Or, 
you know, look for somebody who's relocating, you know, especially somebody who's retiring. You know, that, that's a great person to look for because um, especially here in the city, there are a lot of people who go back down south, back home. Mm-hmm. And so they don't want or to be Or can't afford the property. And, right, right, mm-hmm. right. Or somebody who can't afford the property or somebody who, you know, um, is going into foreclosure or somebody who has horrible tenants and they just want out. You know, that's a motivated seller. You know, those are the people I look for. But they also have to be flexible. So when I say flexible, what am I talking about being flexible on? A seller has to either be flexible on the price or the terms, right? And, and, that, and that goes for me, too, as the investor. If I, if I need to get the price I want, then I have to give them the terms they want. But if they want a certain price, then they have to take my terms. And how does that work? I'll give you a, a great example. If a person is flexible, and I'll give you a, a true story, there was a um, – I didn't actually do the deal, but I was involved in, in helping to set it up. There was a woman who was 90, 90, about 90 years old, and she had a, a prime property. It was in kind of disrepair because uh, she hadn't really done any work on it in, in many years, but it was in a prime location and had great long-term value. And she was ready to sell it, and she wanted a million dollars for the property. And then, you know, you always ask the question, well, how did you come up with that number? What do you want to do with the money? You know, and you can't be afraid to ask them what they're going to do with the money because that will tell you what their motivation is for selling. And she said, well, look, I'm 90 years old. I don't really need any money. What I, I want to do is I want to get money for my grandchildren. I want to make sure they have money. And she said, for me, I need a place to stay. So the terms that were negotiated was, okay, if you need a place to stay and you don't need money, then you don't need a million dollars. So how about we buy an insurance policy that's worth a million dollars and we pay the premiums on it? And then your, your grandchildren will be assured to, have, to be able to split that million dollars. And you'll get a lump sum of money. Maybe you'll get $50,000, $60,000, which, which is good for her at 90 years old. And her thing was, I need a place to stay. I want to live in here until I die. Mm-hmm. So, okay, how about you remain in your apartment and she said no renovation could be done in her apartment, by the way. She <laughs> said, I, <laughs> you get to stay in your apartment until, until you, you pass. Um, you get $50,000 to improve your lifestyle, which she didn't really care about. And there's an, a million-dollar insurance policy so that when you pass, your grandchildren will be assured this million dollars. And in the meantime, we'll be able to control the property by renovating the other units and then renting them out. And that created what you always want to do is create a win-win situation. So when I say motivated and flexible, it still has to be a situation that the, the where you solve a seller's problems, right? And that's that's important. You always want to solve the seller's problems so you create a, a, a win-win deal. It's not always about they need a million dollars cash. Um, mm-hmm. You know, another situation um, I was negotiating with a, a gentleman. Uh, unfortunately, this one didn't go through only because he was in the deal with his brothers. And um, they, were, they were already retired, and he wanted to retire, and he wanted to go back down south. And the building was already free and clear, meaning it had no mortgage on it. So if the building has no mortgage on it, then you don't need all the money up front. And let me explain how, how this makes sense from his perspective. How much money you had to ask him, how much money do you need to move and be, and be comfortable? So he's like, well, if I got twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, then I'd be comfortable just moving. Okay, so then what we could do is what we call carrying back the financing, meaning that um, instead of me paying a mortgage to the bank, 
then I pay a mortgage to you every single month. The same way I would pay the bank, I'm going to pay you. So what does that create for you? It creates like an annuity. And what it does, and, and that's important, so that means you're getting money every single month, passive income every single month, and you hold a real note that at any time you could sell to somebody else and cash out completely because notes mm. can be sold too, by the way. Yeah. But in the meantime, you're getting money every single month like a retirement account, and what it does, it lowers your tax liability because if I gave you six seven hundred thousand dollars up front then you're going to pay a huge amount of taxes on that as opposed to you paying you know in, in smaller amounts over over time period and if you ever decided to cash out you just sell a note and you could sell it anyway mm. you know so like i said there, there are a lot of different ways as a person who doesn't have necessarily a lot of money and you know you never want to tie up a lot of money you know um, there are a lot of different ways to be able to, to do that and there was no risk on his side because if I didn't pay, he could always foreclose on it just like the bank. Mm. Mm. So I always want, number one, I always want a, a motivated, flexible seller. That's, that's okay. key. Mm. I have to have the right location based upon, you know, what my, my intent is with the property and my demographic. So, um, again, I want to look for, if, if I want it for the long term, I look for things that have long-term economic value or intrinsic value. But I want to find those things where people have forgotten the value. So I'll give you an example. In if we look at, at Brooklyn, and I don't know how many people on the call are familiar with Brooklyn, but um, Crown Heights now is the next big thing. And if you had gone to Crown Heights two years ago, and I, I'll give you an example. This is, this, I have a couple of properties in Crown Heights, and there's one property that um, maybe seven or eight years ago I paid 380000 for and I just got an offer the other day for a million fifty thousand, and I know I mm. can probably get one one, maybe even one two, uh, if I hold out till the summer, then the peak of the buying, the peak of the buying season. Right. So, you know, uh, there's certain things you're going to look for uh, in the, in the urban area. In the urban area, anytime you're near water, um, it has intrinsic value. Anytime you're near greenery, uh, a park, it's going to have intrinsic value. Anytime you're near a limestone or a brownstone, it's going to have intrinsic value. So there's certain things that you're going to look for, again, and those things have long-term economic value, but there were times when people forgot. You know, there was a time when nobody wanted to live in Bedside. There was a time when nobody wanted to live in Fort Greene or Clinton Hills, and now those areas, I mean, you know, most people can't afford to live there. So Right, this is very true. Exactly. So I need the right location. Um, the next thing I want to look for is – how do I finance this? If I can get a, a good way to finance it, meaning if I – it doesn't matter what the interest rate is on a flip if I know I have a buyer, right? So, for instance, um, I can look for hard money, and we'll talk about that a little later. I can look for a hard money lender if I'm going to do a flip because they'll give me a big chunk of change, and they're not necessarily worried about my credit score and all that, but the interest rate is about 16%, up to 16% here in New York. Um but if I have a buyer set up, then that's good financing. But if, it, if I have to put in uh, repair costs or I have to hold it for a long period of time, then I have to find another way to finance it. So I have to get good financing on the deal. If I can't find a way to finance it properly and where it's not going to, you know, leave me um, at a very risky place, then I can't do the deal. Um, the next thing is the condition. I have to know how much money I have to be able to put a, a property in the condition that I need it in. So the condition is important. And mm -hmm. when I say condition, um, one thing I, I never want to do uh, is 
not get an estimate on what the, the costs are going to be. And so when I say good condition, good enough where I don't have to put in uh, so much money, it's going to kill the spread. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing I have to do is, um, you know, I have to get it at the right price. And I, I talked to, to you earlier, I want to get it between 20 and 60% below market value most of the time as an investment property, uh, depending mm-hmm. on what I'm trying to do with it. And then the final thing is I need to get the return on investment that I'm looking for. Um, if you're an investor, you're looking for a return on investment. And so right. the numbers won't, the numbers don't lie. Um, and a lot of times people have a different, more difficult time um, figuring out the return on investment on a rental property than they do on a, a flip. On a flip, it's kind, it's kind of easy, right? So what you do, what did I pay for it? And then what did I sell it for? And then we just do a little division and poof, it tells us the percentage of return on investment. You know, it's not, that's not difficult. What people don't understand is when you buy and hold, how do you determine your, your return on investment? And mm-hmm. that's based on uh, what you put into it and the annual income, the annual, annual net income, not the annual growth, the annual net income that you, you end up with. So, for instance, if I put uh, a down payment down and some repair cost, and that costs me $50,000, um, and then I make $5,000 at the end of the year, then that represents a 10% ROI. Okay. If my net, right? Because right, so my fifty thousand dollars is there. So annually, I'm I'm going to make ten percent return on investment if I'm getting five thousand dollars a year. Do you have a benchmark of what the um, uh, ROI should be or yeah, for, the spread? Yeah, for 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 me personally, on a buy and hold, I'll never take less than ten percent. Mm-hmm. And on a buy and flip, I usually want about twenty percent at minimum. Mm-hmm. Because that was a quick turnaround, so I need to. You're tying up money, and then, you know, that money's got to last you. See, that's what right. people don't get, too. You know, um, because it takes time to, again, we're doing that 100 to 10 to 3 to 1. It takes time to find a new deal. Whatever money I make on that flip has to last me a good period of time. So, you know, I want to look for 20%. If I can get 30%, that's great. But never less than 20 on a flip and never less than 10% annually on a buy and hold. Okay, buy and hold, okay. Right. Um, so the next thing we want to do is, is we never want to buy a property or make an offer sight unseen. You know, and what's that mean? That we have to actually visit a property. Um, I've had students of mine tell me they put a down payment on a property in Florida. I'm like, well, did you actually see the property? They said, yeah, I saw it online. They did a virtual tour. A mm. virtual tour. <laughs> a virtual tour is not like actually going to a physical location and looking at it yourself. That's right? true. Um, you know, it, it's so important. And, and to me, that this should be three times at least that the property is seen. I'll explain how, why I say that. The first thing is mm-hmm. that you need to go and do a physical inspection first because it has to meet your desired outcome. So you have to say, okay, I, it, it, every property is going to need some changes, Mm-hmm. But but is there room for me to make the changes that I need, or how bad does this place look? You know, uh, you know, or is it the right location? And you know, I have to look at the neighborhood when I get there. If I go to a neighborhood in the daytime, and there are a lot of adults outside, it tells me something. 
it tells me people are not working. Right. 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 If, if I go to a place, and I want to go in different seasons, if I go to a place and, and half the night people are outside, then it might not be a place that's amenable for, to, to families, you know. So right. there, there's certain things. So I want to go and take a physical inspection. I want to go and I want to talk to the neighbors. I want to talk to people. People, you'd be surprised. People will tell you everything about a neighborhood, whether it's good or bad. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you, oh, you don't, want to, you don't want to buy this property because X, Y, and Z, or this is a great neighborhood and, you know, everybody should be here. So, um, you know, it's, it's important that you go and do a physical inspection first. The next thing you're going to have to do before you make an offer is that you're going to have to bring a contractor with you so that they can give you an estimate on not only what it's going to cost, but how long it's going to take to put it in the condition that you're looking for. See, that's one thing we don't, we don't think about. Um, so what, what people don't get to is you shouldn't have to pay an, a contractor to go to the property and, and give you an estimate. Most contractors would do a free estimate. So if, if you have one that says, no, I won't do a free estimate, find another one. So you go there, and they'll tell you, again, not only what it's going to cost to put it in a certain condition, but how long it's going to take them to do it, and that's important. Before you close, it's also important that you get a professional inspection done. Now, a professional inspector will tell you things that a contractor cannot tell you. They'll tell you about the about structural damage. They'll tell you about termites perhaps in the place. They'll tell you about, you know, um, maybe the, the plumbing or you know, things that need to be repaired. And so a contractor can tell you how to fix things, but they can't necessarily identify uh, certain structural things that could really make the deal super expensive. And the reason I say you don't get a professional inspection done until you're in contract is because that will cost you. Um, I know here in, in New York City it costs you between – Five hundred and fifteen hundred dollars to get a professional inspector to come and, and do an inspection. So until you have that in contract, you put that as one of the clauses that yes. you know, um, you know, as your clause that it has to um, pass a professional inspection. You know, it has to have a favorable inspection. Then you don't do that. So and that fee is go, non-refundable, right? That's non-refundable. That's yeah. right. So. so so the next thing we wanted to, you know, once we've seen it and once we get an estimate and we work out numbers and it looks like the spread is good, um, that's when we start negotiating. And, again, we need to go into it. Well, first things first, my thing is always do your homework on, on the seller. You know, I want to know how long this person's had the property. I want to know what they paid for it. I want to know what their expenses are. I want to know um, if, if, if they're happy landlording. I want to know why they're selling I want to know how old they are. I want to know everything I can about this person because I go into it again trying to figure out what their problem is and how I can solve the problem. As an investor, you become a problem solver. It's not just mm-hmm. about acquiring a property. You have to be a, a problem solver. So I gather as much information as I can before I go into it. So uh, it also tells me how honest the seller is, is going to be too. I, most of the questions I ask, I already know the answers to. Then what I want to do is I want to be clear to myself what benefits I want in the, in the negotiation. So I'm going to pick a price in terms. Um, that's my bottom line where I can't bend. I'm not going to start there, but I have to know in my mind what's the price that I can get and still get the return on investment I'm looking for. Um, what are the terms that I need to be able to close this deal? And then I want to structure a win-win situation from that information. 
So the key to that is to continuously ask questions and listen very intently to what they say. Um, and then what you want to do is make the seller aware of how you're going to solve their problem. Right. And that's important. Now, here's something that's really critical to understand. You should never, ever mention price first. The person who mentions price first always loses. Mm. And so what I would tend to do is when I'm doing the physical inspection, I'm walking around a property, I'll find a blemish. It could be a cracked ceiling or a watering on the ceiling or, you know, something wrong. And that's when I'll bring a price. I'll, I'll, I'll point out the floor. Or I'll be staring at the floor and say, so how much did you say you wanted for the property? And I'll let them throw the price out first, always. And when they say the price, the next question you should always ask is, well, how did you come up with that number? And most people don't have a really great way of choosing a number. Um, I think this is what it's worth. My cousin told me that's what it's worth. This is the number that I want. And so I'll always counter that with, um, well, there's a formula that I use, and I've been doing this a long time, and my formula is 99.7% accurate. And why do wow. I not use 100%? Ivory Soap didn't say they were 100% pure. They said we're 99.9% pure. If you say 100%, nobody believes it because nothing's 100%, right? So I have mm. a formula that I use where I come up with my numbers. I really do. I have a formula. And so... I know the number that I can offer, but here's the thing, too. I never offer a round number. So if somebody said, well, I want 500000 for the property, I said, well, you know, I calculated the numbers, and, you know, I can give you 323654 And they're like, wow, like you really calculated this thing down to the penny as opposed to coming up with a, a, just this round number. And then when they counter, if they come up with a round number, then you see they're just reaching. And then you just say, if they ask you for a counter, then you kind of recalculate the numbers. And, you ne- again, you never give a round number because oh. it just sounds fake. Mm-hmm. And so um, and you, one thing you always want to do is you always want to ask for more than what you want and then give back the things that you don't really want. And I'll give you an example. Um, if I came to a property and I happened to take notice that they had, let's say, an old broken-down Cadillac in, in the back, looked like they were working on it as a hobby, um, it looked like the wife had a bunch of plants in the window that she really adores. Um, what I would do, I'd say, well, how much do you want for that property? And they say, I want 500000 And I'm thinking to myself, okay. I stop and I say, well, okay, if you want 500000 because I know I need my terms, so I'm going to give them this price. If you want 500000 I'll do it if you throw in the plants and you throw in the, the Cadillac in the yard. <laughs> and I know that right, I know they're emotionally attached to it. And they're like, oh no, I can't give up the can't give up the Cadillac and the plant. Okay, well, if you don't want to give up the plants and the Cadillac, <laughs> then we got to come down another fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, good. Right, and a lot of times they'll, they'll do that because it's like, whoa, I can't give up the Cadillac, and so I gave them back <laughs> something that I never really had, but I gave them back something that was so emotionally important to them that they're willing to come down on the price. So mm-hmm. you know, there's a real art to negotiating. Um, and, and you have to understand, you have to play that game, because if you walked in and you gave them everything they wanted as soon as they said it, then they wouldn't be happy. Right. Because if they said, we want $500,000, we want it all cash, you got to close in two weeks, you said, okay, they would be upset because it's like, wait a minute, if he gave me 500000 cash and he closed in two weeks, I probably could have got more. And so they'll, they'll, you know, they probably wouldn't end up closing on the deal because in their mind they're thinking they can get more if you close, if you, you know, agreed so quickly. So you have to play that dance. 
Um, okay. So the next thing is once you get it in the contract, there's certain creative contract clauses that you want to put in the, in, in the deal, um, and they're really important. The first one um, that we want to make sure we have, and I, I mentioned it earlier, is anywhere we sign our name, we want to put and or assigns right after your name. That's your mm-hmm. new last name. If you're a real estate investor, your new last name is and or assigns. And the reason we do that, that allows you the ability, again, to assign the contract to someone else, to sell the deal to someone else. Um, so that's really critical. The next thing you want to do is you have, want to have certain subject to clauses. Right? The, this deal is subject to. So um, subject to clauses, sometimes you call them weasel clauses because they're, you're, they're your way to kind of get out of the deal uh, without losing your down payment if you need to. So uh, the first subject to clause that I think everybody should have, and which is super important, is this deal is subject to my partner's approval. Mm. And that's critical to have in there. This deal is subject to my partner's approval. Your partner can be anyone. I can be your partner if you need me to, to be. Um, so if something happens and the deal is not working, well, my partner didn't approve. It's in the contract. <laughs> so <laughs> you're able to get out of the deal you know, um, without losing the down payment. Um, you might want to put subject to clauses about all the appliances. So you might have to have appliances, heaters, refrigerators, stoves, all in, in a certain working order or brand new. You might put that in there. Um, you might put, you put that the seller has to obtain a termite inspection. Um, you always want to put that you that the property has to have a favorable inspection by a professional inspector, which normally you pay for. But if it doesn't pass a favorable inspection, then that allows you to revisit the contract and possibly get a lower price or walk away. Now, one of the things that I, I usually put in a contract, if I'm going to buy and hold or buy and flip, is that um, I want to be able to make certain improvements to the property and to be able to show it prior to closing. Now, why is that important, especially if I'm, I'm going to uh, rent it? What I'll do, for instance, is if it's in decent condition, I don't have to put a lot of work in there, um, I'll go into Home Depot. This is, uh, you guys pay attention to this. This is a real insider trip. I'll go to Home Depot and go to the paint department and ask for the oops paint. Oops paint is paint that people brought back that they didn't want. And so, you know, Home Depot sells that at a discount. I want to get everything as close to white that they have as possible. So I want to buy it all. And I want to go home and I want to get a big garbage pail, a clean one, pour it all in there, stir it up. And then I'm going to paint the place all white or or close to white, whatever that, that comes out to be. And that becomes very inexpensive. Also, what I want to do is I want to um, be able to uh, cut any shrubs or, you know, grass, whatever they have in front of the place. And when you show it, you're going to rub vanilla scent on all the light bulbs. So as that place heats up, it smells like baking cookies or, or pastry. So it reminds people of when they were a baby or when they were young and their mommy used to make cookies and things. So it makes the place more appealing. Now, right. if, you're going to buy, if you're going to buy and flip, now here's a, another insider trick that's really important. What I'll do is I'll schedule, say, six potential uh, purchasers that want to purchase the place and I'll schedule their appointments 15 minutes apart and I'll show up a half an hour late for the first one. And I don't know if that makes sense to everybody, but that means they have a pile of people standing outside 
waiting to look at the property, and they all know that each person is waiting to look at that property. And mm-hmm. what will happen, your phone will be ringing, and I could be a couple of blocks away just waiting because I want those, those people to pile up. It creates a sense of urgency and scarcity. They all want the same property, and they know they all can't get it. So by the time you get there and you're half an hour late and there's three, four buyers already standing out there, they all want to run up to you and make a deal right away. Right. But you, but you say, no, you have to wait. I'm going to show it to everyone. You should take the first one in, and I guarantee you, you won't get two steps before they try to make an offer. And you tell them, no, you have to wait. And you do this for all of them. And you're so much more likely to increase the amount of offers you get and the price that you get by doing that. So that's important. Um, you also want to put favorable closing dates in your, in your contract. So if you know you need more time, then you want to extend the closing date out further. If you know you want to get the deal done because you have a buyer lined up you want to, and financing lined up, then you make the deal shorter. Um, you might put in there that the seller has to pay closing costs. You might put in there that the seller has to relinquish all their taxes, insurance, impounds to you. You might want to put in there, you know, um, that they pay any FHA or VA points. There's certain things that you you want to throw as much as many things as possible in the contract. Um, again, with the idea that you might be giving some things up, but you always end up with a whole lot more. So, uh, one thing you want to put in the, in there too is that you you're able to uh, obtain suitable and adequate financing, and you want to put a specific amount on or before the closing date. Um, that way you can get your, your earnest money or your down payment back if you can't get financing, if you don't qualify for some reason. So I know we're running down time. So the last thing is, is really dealing with the financing aspect of it. And I think most people don't understand, you know, what money are needed. And so I just want to go over that really quickly. Um, the first thing you have to understand is that you're going to need what you call earnest money. Earnest money is a small deposit that you give to the seller to let them know that you're serious about doing the deal and you're ready to go in a contract. So it can be as little as $100 and as much as 1000 I wouldn't really go over more than $1,000, but you could do it for $100 and say, look, this is earnest money. I'm, I'm serious about going in the contract. Um, hold this. And it has to go in escrow. It's not like they can spend it. And it goes towards the down payment. Um, then you're going to need a down payment. And mm-hmm. a down payment – for a first-time home buyer, it can be two and a half, maybe three to five percent. But if you're an investor, it can be much higher because it's not a first property. It can go as high as thirty-five percent for a commercial property. So you have to understand that you're going to need a large chunk of the purchase price, and you only really need a down payment if you're getting financing from the bank because the bank is going to make sure that you have some skin in the game. It's not necessary for necessarily for the seller to get a down payment, although their lawyer would try to insist so that you don't back out of the deal. Um, but a down payment is really what's required from the bank because they're not going to finance it 100%. Um, and then what people truly underestimate are closing costs. Closing costs are all the fees associated with finalizing the purchase. And here in New York, closing costs are about 6% of the total purchase price. So for every 100000 that it costs, it's about $6,000 in closing costs. So if it's a million-dollar property, that's $60,000 that you're going to need just for closing. That's not including the down payment. Right. So several ways to find financing. Um, the traditional financing, which is with the bank, and you can probably go to uh, bankrate.com and see how much you qualify for from traditional lending. 
you can use hard money lenders, and there are, are just a million of them on the Internet. So if you just Google hard money lenders, you'll find that. You can do seller financing, which I mentioned earlier, if you can get the uh, seller to carry the note uh, because the property is paid off free and clear. Um, you can assume a loan. If it's an FHA or BA loan, you can actually just pick up or continue where the seller left off on the mortgage and then um, just pay the seller, you know, the difference. Um, there's peer lending now. So if you put, uh, if you Google peer lending for real estate, there are all these p- new peer lending um, sources. There's crowdsource funding that you can use for your um, down payment. People might help you out with that. So, you know, that's in a nutshell. And I know, again, we didn't have a lot of time. In a nutshell, um, that's real estate investing. I don't know if we have a minute or two for questions. I, I think we're kind of. We're almost um, at that at that point, and our callers are a little shy today. I guess they're taking notes. Um, they haven't called in yet, um, but I think you've given us a lot of gems, uh, as usual, Haru. Well, we are actually at that time. It's almost 10 o'clock, and normally that is the hour in which we conclude our uh, instructions, but today we <laughs> did get a whole bunch <laughs> And I'm sitting here trying to figure out how I can just start utilizing some of these uh, techniques and do it in a uh, way that we can be profitable. And, um, again, you know, going back to uh, the intentions, is, you know, we got a, a 15-year-old son, and we said uh, just the other day that we definitely have to start talking about him purchasing property or having property purchased for him, being the real estate right now. I got off the phone earlier today with uh, no, yesterday with one of my daughters, and she told me she's looking at getting in real estate, and I'm hoping she's on the line listening in because this was a collegiate uh, walkthrough in terms of how to um, get into the real estate investment arena. And uh, we really definitely appreciate, you know, all that you do in terms of research and delivery of this instruction. Well, thank you. And, and I just want to point out, I, um, for those of you who are in the New York City area, I, I'm doing my last free workshop for the season. I usually take off the summer this Sunday. So if you're interested in attending, um, you can see the event on, on the actual keys 107 page. I posted it up there, or you can inbox me on Facebook or uh, email me at Haru H E R U at insidersgroup.com and I'll reserve a seat for you and any guests that you have. And Haru, what Sunday time does that show start? Oh, you read uh, my mind again. So that's, <laughs> yeah. Th- <laughs> this Sunday at 2 PM, uh, from 2 PM to 4:30. So I'm going to cover, um, you know, a lot of things, the things that we couldn't actually cover today, I'm going to, you know, just supplement uh, what we did today and add a whole bunch more so you'll get a good picture of, of how to make money. And not just in real estate, I'm going to cover some other areas as well. Mm. So the, I think uh, we, we are going to close out, but I, I just really wanted to say, Haru, that I, I really took to the uh, point you was making about uh, leasing the property and setting up uh, rental situations for government-driven programs. That seems like a win-win situation. And I also like that you said, find the program first, then the property. It just makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. So listen, everybody who's tuned in, and especially my new callers, are numbers I don't recognize on the switchboard, welcome to the Keys 107. Thank you so much for taking a moment of your time and tuning in. We hope that We've brought you some uh, information that can help you in a decision that you're embarking on right away. All of our shows are archived. You can listen to us 
via our website at www.thekeys107network.com, or you can tune in to all of our shows from the day we began um, three years ago on iTunes. Um, and send your questions to to Haru at suggestions at thekeys107network.com. And also, Haru, can you give out your website? Yes, uh, www.insidersgroup.com. And, again, you can also find Insiders Group, Inc. You should, uh, please like it on Facebook. And also, Recession Driven Riches, which is the title of my book. I have a page for that. Or you can go to www.recessiondrivenriches.com and purchase the book because it has a, a whole section on real estate. And, again, things that we couldn't cover in a short amount of time here. It goes in-depth, step-by-step on how to do it. Well, you know, uh, in the promotions I've been saying – you know, um, you want to get real wealth, you got to invest in real estate. So okay. with that, we want to thank you very, very much for coming back on the Keys. And this is your home. And um, you you have blessed us tremendously over the months that you've been with us. And uh, we want to continue this relationship and keep moving forward into uh, we all are wealthy, healthy, and satisfied with life. So thank you again, Brother Harul. And uh, may God bless you and keep you. Thank you. So we're going to close with uh, Kevin Owens and Luther Vandross' song, You Are My Everything. It's a cover of the Eddie Kendricks hit record, but I think this is appropriate as the world turns purple and doves continue to cry.
James. 